we're going to do an experiment today, something a little bit different, um, and it comes out of this idea that we floated on camp, where we realised there's so much wisdom in the room, and there's so much um, wealth of experience, that the application part of a sermon could actually be achieved by you guys. So instead of building it into a message, what we're going to do is explore what the, um, the scripture says, and then enable you guys with some questions from what the scripture's been presented, kick around some ideas where you might strengthen and help each other and be in a space where you can kind of go, oh, what about this and what about that? So we're gonna trial it today and see how it goes. So I'd be really keen to hear what you thought of it afterwards. Um, don't, don't vote with your feet and just leave halfway through, because there'll be like two people in a small group of six, it'd just be really awkward for them. So, um, we've been reading through the Bible, the New Testament, um, on, um, on a Monday, we read Luke 19, 28 to 42, and that's what I'm gonna focus on. It was in Jesus when he approached Jerusalem and walked in Jerusalem. There's so much happening in just that short um, passage of scripture. So if you wanna be part of our Bible reading plan and you're not already, you can either join it by grabbing a piece of paper out there, or, um, oh, look at that, you can just grab that now, or afterwards, that's a QR code, um, which will take you right to the um, link on Uversion Bible. Is that right, Uversion? Yeah, I got that right. Um, so it'd be part of that. But if you're old school, you're like, just give me a piece of paper. We've got a piece of paper for you. It's updated too with like what? Yeah, so there's a new one um, for which starts, I don't know, Monday or something? Soon, soon. So grab one of them. Uh, on that, the more we get to spend in the Word of God, the more our lives start to look like the Word of God. The more we can, we, we, we're changed and transformed to the image of Christ, we start to bear and live his story as we're reading his story. So I just encourage everyone to do that. So if you were on Monday, if you're part of this, you would have read the following words, Luke 19, 28. After he, Jesus, had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now he was currently in Jericho when this was written. And Jericho, I don't know if you knew this, is the lowest point on earth. Did you know that? Jericho is the lowest point on earth. And to get out of Jericho, you have to not only climb, you have to climb up the valley, up the valley of Jericho. And then once you get to the top, to get to Jerusalem, which is on a mountain, you then have to climb up the mountain, right? So it's like double pain. And so that's where Jesus was moving from, right from the bottom, where this desolate um, valley um, that represented, it was just dry and hot and wearisome. And you get right up to the top of the, almost the Temple Mount, and you, you move over the crest, and in front of you, especially in the season that this was written in, were these green pastures. And there's this idea right from the outset that, that Jesus' ministry is about moving from the outskirts to the heart. It's about moving from moving us from the dry places to the, 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 the lush places, moving us from the desert to the bountiful, from the margins to the center of things. He, he moves us from the lost places to the found places. And the found place was Jerusalem. So verse 29, it continues on. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a cult that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are untying it, just say, the Lord needs it. Now that word Lord isn't used about Jesus in Luke until this point. And the reason they use it is the word, that, that's an affectionate, respectful term we would use when uh, addressing God. 
So you might use it in your prayer life when you say, Lord, could you do this? Or Lord, I worship you or whatever. Um, so it's the same vibe here. It's not like an earthly Lord or someone that's high and mighty. It was a term of divinity given to Jesus. So, so Jesus is starting to really embrace what it means to be God. To be king and for, and as he moves toward what we ultimately know is the cross and his crucifixion and resurrection um, and so there's this this sort of like hint towards it the lord needs it god's mission needs it so those who are with him sent um depart those who were uh, sorry so those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them and as they were there untying the colt his owners asked them why are you shoplifting from us and they said the lord needs it and we read this right and we go, Jesus was like the original Jedi. Because how could he know, right? And the spoiler alert is he'd been to Bethany a bunch before. And what probably happened is when he went there, he sided with some guys that, uh, that were raising a young cult and said, I'm going to be um, here at Passover next year. I'm going to send some guys to come and pick up the donkey. Can you put it aside? But they'll know it's me. You'll know it's me when I say the Lord needs it, right? So that's probably what happened as opposed to Jesus like, woohoo. Um, there was some stuff where Jesus was like amazing at. But this was probably pre-planned. He was already planning what things were going to look like as he walked into Jerusalem in a year's time or in so much so so forth. So verse 35, then they brought it, the colt, that's a donkey, not a firearm, to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, the donkey, not the firearm, they set Jesus on it. And that word set was the same word, it's not used very much at all, it was the same word that they used when they put Solomon on a stallion and he rode towards his coronation. He rode to be crowned king. It was the setting, it was what you did with royalty to prepare them for the throne and the crown they were going to take. So there's this language that captures us up in something more than Jesus riding on a donkey into a city is taking place here. Now, at this point, the disciples should have thought, hang on, there's something a bit, a bit funny going on. Because they would have been getting the gist of what's, what's taking place, except they knew that a real king rode a real horse. Not a colt, not a donkey, a real horse, right? A stallion. The, the king would ride that in because the stallion represented strength and power and prestige because that's what a king's kingdom would look like. And so the disciples at this point should have been a little bit like, oh, hang on, something funny is happening. What does, what does the kingdom of a king who rides a donkey actually look like? As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. Now in Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah's Old Testament, speaking about this very point in time, um, the words of Zechariah the prophet say this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, so when Jesus orders the donkey like online, to the disciples, go get it. They're familiar with the prophecy, right? They know this prophecy. Before Jesus like, doesn't need to intro it, they know the prophecy. And they're like, oh, the day has come. The king is arrived. We are, we are now part of a royal procession. We are now important. We're now going to finally, after trudging around with this guy for three years, it's come to the point of, oh, things are going to change and they're going to be different here. It's come to crunch point. They're going into Jerusalem as part of a royal procession to crown Jesus the king. And Jesus' kingdom, as a result of that, will finally come. 
will arrive, will change everything. So, the first question we're going to discuss, but we're not going to discuss it now, since this is just so you can start thinking about it, is this. Thanks, Ori. How would things in Burley look different if Jesus' coming kingdom arrived in its fullness today? That anticipation the disciples have, right? Oh, today it all changes. Boom. What would it, what would it look like? And if it would look like that, what does that mean for us and our actions? Because we're not living where the disciples are living. We're living post Resurrection. We're living where we are bearers of the kingdom, right? So that's the first question. You can start kicking that around. Don't think too heavily on it and not listen to me. It's very important that you listen to me. But you can have a, th- have a think about that. All right. So the disciples are getting swept up in this. And we're not just talking about the 12 disciples, right? This is important. The 12 disciples are there, but there's a multitude of disciples. So there could have been hundreds People that Jesus healed, that he taught, that he set free, that he enabled to enter back into community. People that were just mesmerized by his teaching, that wanted to be around him. In this instance, they were the disciples that were this growing crowd around Jesus who were thinking, we hate Rome and we're finally on the winning team. If we stick on this team, we ride it all the way to the top. This is going to be amazing. So they laid their jackets on the ground because that's what you did for someone who was an incoming king. That's what you did. And they sang songs of reverence and celebration and they cheered because that's what you do for an incoming king. And as the momentum built and the excitement started to spread, they were on the cusp of going, this is a new day for Jerusalem. It all changes now. It all changes. Something incredible is taking place and you could feel it in the air and the people, they wanted to be part of it. Verse 37 says, as Jesus was now approaching the path, down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen. And, and we're, we're privy to two stories that are taking place right in this moment. There's the story of these disciples, people that have been impacted by Jesus' ministry, who are thinking, new king overthrows Caesar, kicks out Herod, Rome is done for, rules with peace and we get to benefit because we'll be ruling with him, right? We'll be the ones who finally have the power. That's what's going on for the disciples, this multitude of disciples. And then there's Jesus' story. See, that's very different for Jesus in this moment. He's looking at things differently and it breaks his heart. And you just see him just overcome with this grief. It says in verse 41, as he came near, he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he knows the city will not want to accept the peace that he's bringing in the way that he's bringing it. They're so invested in conflict and winning and being on top that accepting the kingship of Jesus, it'll be so difficult for them. And so I thought a good question for us to kick around is this one. Next slide, just go there. Oh no, oh yeah, there we go. Now that. Who do you know would find the kingship of Jesus very difficult to surrender to? And maybe that's a question that you're going, ah, oh, maybe me at the moment. But there might be someone. It's an opportunity for us to pray for each other, to pray, pray for people. All right. So the crowd's growing. The volume of what's happening is growing. And they sing this victory song. 
The, the words are from Psalm 118. And the song in Psalm 118 is reserved for kings who overthrow their enemies. It's a song sung by a conquering army when they've just trashed and destroyed their adversaries and they're kind of rubbing it in. It's a song about a great king who destroys his foes and establishes his kingdom. And that's the song that they sing as Jesus enters into the, the city. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are celebrating that the king is to bring the peace of heaven to earth for them right now. Not for their enemies. No, no, no. And not for Rome. Not for those who disagree with them, not for those they don't like, not for the Samaritans, not for people that don't fit the mold, but for them, the kingdom was coming, the king was here, and they were stoked about it. And as this procession, it gains popularity. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, this is probably the polite way that it was like, Luke, when he's writing, he's like, I can't, I can't write what they actually said. But this would have been heated, right? It wasn't just, oh, Jesus, <laughs> rascal, can you just stop? It wasn't that at all. And he says, Jesus responds, he says, I tell you, if they're silent, the stones would shout out. See, the Pharisees are starting to freak out because what they have on their hands is, is a messianic demonstration. It's what happens when somebody who claims to be the Messiah comes to town. And it was not good for business unless it was the Messiah. And Jesus was not the Messiah. And so they want to distance themselves as far as they can from the Messiah. Because if they're seen to be in cahoots with the Messiah, they lose all the freedom and the rights and the privileges they get, right? So they see this coming and they're like, he's the troublemaker. There's no way he's the disciple. He's the uh, thing. So they calm it down. Not because... If you don't, we're going to distance ourselves. And that's what we see in the next few chapters of Luke. The Pharisees getting closer and closer to Rome and further and further away from Jesus and from the Jewish people. And what does Jesus do? That's what he always does. I love it. He just fans the flame. Because Jesus can see what is about to happen for Jerusalem. Jesus can see what is about to happen for Israel and the entire world. The long-awaited messianic king will establish his kingdom and it will be harbored in Jerusalem. So Jesus responds by telling the Pharisees that all of creation has been yearning for this moment. We see that in Paul later on. All of creation is groaning for the return of the king. And if there were no one else to celebrate it, creation itself would rise up and would declare this wonderful moment. Jesus is there to fulfill the will of God the Father while everybody else is there for Jesus to fulfill their will because of God the Father. And we see it become starker and starker. See, just a, just a few chapters later, the crowd are celebrating with Jesus. The crowd that were celebrating with Jesus are the same crowd that were yelling for Barabbas to get his freedom because Jesus had not delivered as they said he would. Hang on, he got arrested? Oh, that we know where this ends up. This, this is not a point where he overthrows Rome. He was a fake. He was a false. What they hoped and the hope that they put in turned out to be empty. Um, it didn't turn out to be empty. For them, it was empty. And so their understanding was, well, we're going to go. We're going to go with the other guy. We weren't really with him. Free Barabbas. Free Barabbas. That's a great idea. They're so blinded by how they understood things must go that they ultimately missed what God was doing. And as I was pondering this 
this week, I thought, man, that could be scary for us, can't it? We, we have an idea of exactly how God should answer our prayers and exactly what God should do and how God should do it and, and what God should do with our enemies, right? For just the sake. And, and we can invest so heavily in that that we miss Jesus and what Jesus is trying to do. And we miss being part of that and joining with that. So the final question is this. Are you currently expecting God to do something a certain way which may be limiting your vision of what he is actually doing? So here's what we're going to do. We've got heaps of time. This is good. So you'll see there's a minute mark next to each of those things. There's a warm-up question, which is dead easy that anyone can answer. Because I realise something like this, some of you are like, oh, this is just not comfortable. And that, that's fine. You can just sit and participate as you like. But the warm-up question we're going to give you, um, which, yeah, go next. See, there you go. When, when have you gone somewhere unfamiliar and how did you feel? So everyone can have a crack at that. You can answer that with one word or whatever you like. We're not going to spend a lot of time. Right? This isn't 45 minutes on, oh, I went to this party and did it. No, no, no. So it's a minute, it's a warm up. The real stuff is these three questions. And there might be one of those questions you're like, oh, I really want to get stuck into that. Or you might just move through. We've actually got time to do it. So we're going we're gonna to spend five minutes and I'm going to tell you when your time's up. And what you choose to do with that is on you, right? Um, but when we get to the end, so when we're 16 minutes in, we're going to share communion together. So at that point, I might be gracious and give you a minute or two just to wrap it up. But you're going to stay in your groups and you're going to share communion with each other in your groups. And I'll kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll take us through that time. Does that sound cool?